0: Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about how our political institutions are failing us and ideas for fixing them. Today, the topic for discussion is populism, something everyone's talking
1: about.
2: I'm Julia Azari, associate professor of political science at Marquette University and contributor at the independent political science blog, Mr. Perfaction. Faction.
1: And I'm Lee Drutman, I'm a senior fellow at New America.
0: And I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer in the School of Public Affairs at American University.
2: All right. So we're going to start off with the, with our big definitional question of what is what is populism. Um, then we're going to go into a little bit more depth about where where the idea comes from. Um, oh, actually, before that, we'll talk about where we where we all stand with regard to populism. Then we'll delve into the history. Um, and then we'll talk about some proposals to to change populism or what, what implications it might have for reform and then we'll see if if our ideas if we change each other's minds so let's start with what is populism who wants to jump in first yeah,
0: yeah julia so populism is a very contested idea it's a very diverse idea there are many different approaches to discerning its meaning for example, in the literature, the popular agency approach is one way to look at it. And it, and it looks as, po- sees populism referring to a democratic way of life, right? A struggle by the people through popular engagement in politics. It's gonna It considers populism to be a positive force because it helps mobilize the common people and leads to the development of a communitarian kind of way of life or a communitarian democracy. That's one approach. Another uh, counter approach is the Leclawin approach, this is the named after the Argentinian political theorist Ernesto Laclau, and also his wife. Uh, he's he passed away, but his his wife, Belgian uh, theorist uh, Chantal Mouffe, and both Laclau and Mouffe consider populism to be the essence of politics. Right? It's a and it's, it's emancipatory, and it's the solution to problems that are created by neoliberal politics, and it solves those problems by mobilizing the people to participate in politics. It creates. Uh, conflict and it changes or challenges the status quo. Think of like Schott Schneider and Frank Baumgartner as well. And then uh, one of the la- last two approaches that I typically think about are the political strategy or the political strategy approach. And that's employed by a specific type of political leader who seeks to kind of govern based on direct uh, appeals to the people. And then an ideational approach, which tries to uh, bring all of these different ways of thinking about populism into one kind of definition, and it sees populism as a weak ideology or worldview, and it, it it's attached to other stronger ideologies or host ideologies, and that explains. The diversity of populism and, and how it can be in the concept of left wing populism or right wing populism and in general left wing populists usually will combine populism with some form of socialism, and right wing populists are going to combine it with uh, some type of uh, nationalism.
1: All right, well, that was pretty there you, thorough. You got, there you go, oh, man. Uh, yeah, I mean, so so I, I think most definitions of populism. Uh, posit that it, it is critical of elites. Uh, it, it sees politics as a contest between the people and the interests, and uh, I think a lot of versions treat it as inherent. Uh, treat the people as inherently homogenous, uh, reified, authentic whole, and in that sense, populism is often anti-pluralist and ultimately anti-democratic and frankly authoritarian now that's that, that may be one version of populism and and perhaps there's a version that is much more radically decentralized that what we you know what what we want to do is is take power back to the people but we we accept that there's sort of a grassroots diversity uh, which is often more of a left populism i think at least uh, as i think of it uh although maybe left and right don't quite quite capture that dimension maybe it's it's grassroots versus authoritarian uh and you know frankly I, i do think some populism can be good because i do i do think that it's important to have some distrust for elites uh, but I, I think we get into a dangerous territory when that populism is based on ethno-nationalism and authoritarianism. And I think that's a lot of the populism that we're seeing in the world uh, now today, which is why so many people seem to be concerned about this growing populism.
0: Julia, if I can jump in here real quickly, uh, I think populism is, is all it's opposed by either elitism or elites or pluralism. And I'm going to try to pigeonhole Lee here as an elite. Uh, but elitism is essentially, you know, it's the, it's the other side of the coin from populism, right? It's, it, it, says, it sees the, the world in, in kind of stark terms. But instead of the people as the good guys, it sees the elites as the good guys and the people are the bad guys. Um, and it, it represents, in my mind, a rejection of politics. It's very technocratic. Um, and pluralism, on the other hand, rejects both the dualist approaches of populism and elitism. And it sees uh, diversity as a good thing. Societies that are strong have lots of groups. They're dynamic. Um, they're strong.
1: I'm a, I'm a pluralist at heart. Uh, but, I mean, I think the challenge of pluralism is that it's, it's fundamentally an open process and it's often messy. And it leads to lots of tradeoffs and lots of bargaining and lots of half-loaves. And even though that's necessary for, for governance, sometimes it can get stuck. Sometimes it can wind up over overrepresenting the best organized forces in politics because it is open. Uh, so, I mean, the, the, you know, you could think of it as pluralism is open politics and elite politics and populist or at least authoritarian populists are closed versions of politics and maybe not even really politics if they're closed. That politics, by definition, has to be open. But openness lets in a lot of things. And when you have a lot of voices and a lot of diversity, sometimes you wind up not coming to any, any agreement and things wind up being stalled, which leads to, I think, a lot of the frustration. Or you have too much... Con- you know. Anyway, we'll, we'll let Julia jump in here.
2: Yeah, so I'm working on an essay about populism for an edited collection on the broader topic of popular sovereignty. And I've also been to a bunch of conferences on populism. And we can never agree on a definition. It's really hard to define. I think you have laid out some of the important Thinkers and considerations. What I would add is that populism has a sort of edge of um, of antagonism. I think that's one of the key defining features of populism: is that it has to identify some element of um, of elites that are doing wrong, and that in the U.S. populism has a very you know broadly ideologically diverse history, um, almost to the point where it maybe maybe calls into question whether these even belong under the same umbrella. But So we have this sort of history of uh, populism as a left-wing movement in an attempt to mobilize economically and politically disadvantaged people, perhaps most famously attached to uh, the 1896 presidential campaign of Democrat William Jennings Bryan associated with all sorts of proposed changes to economic policy and criticism of the gold standard and the cost of gold speech at the 1896 convention. On the right, it's, you know, it's been associated with, among other things, a backlash against civil rights, the idea of a, a silent majority or forgotten Americans, um, and then more recently, both Trump's anti-immigrant rhetoric, but also his anti-trade rhetoric. So the question that I'm left with is what, if anything, is an ideology that describes William Jennings Bryan, George Wallace, 1968, uh, Southern Democratic candidate for president, or current um, economically left candidate for president, Elizabeth Warren, and Donald Trump?
0: Right, well... So again, I think thinking of populism as a, as a weak ideology that's attached to these other uh, stronger ideologies. So in the American context, and you've hit on all of these things, populism starts as a progressive ideology in the late 19th century. But over the course of the early part of the 20th century, it slowly changes into a conservative or more reactionary phenomenon. Think of like anti-communism, anti-liberal, kind of pro-silent majority, um, the backlash against civil rights in the late 1960s. And on that uh, Rick Perlstein's book, Nixonland, has, is a great deep dive into, into that backlash and how, it, how we go from 1964 to 1968 and the complete just flip in America um, in our politics based on that backlash. So I think you're hitting on all of this. But there are three kind of core components of all populism, whether they be of the left wing or the right wing variety. And that is that you have the people. The elite, and then you have this idea of a Rousseauistic general will. But the people can be used to refer to the sovereign people, which is very much an American idea, a French idea. Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, where he talks about a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. But also the idea of the common people, which is uh, usually accompanied by a critique of culture. Think Main Street versus Wall Street. You know, I drink coffee versus a, a latte. I drive an American-made car versus some sort of fancy European import. And then the people as a nation or the people as part of a national community. And then all of the populist uh, populist versions that you're throwing out here, they theorize some form of the elite as the enemy of the people or the opponent. And the general will is viewed as their kind of particular idea of politics that is embraced by the people against the elites. And so all the different kinds of populisms that you've mentioned in our history all hit on those three key concepts, it seems to me.
1: Oh man! Now I see why you're going to paint me as a, as an elite because I, I I've been drinking these green tea tea matcha <laughs> lattes and they are so good. What did you have for lunch today? Oh, I had a salad. Uh, was yeah. it like
0: broccoli sprouts? Yeah, and my, my homegrown, home-grown
1: broccoli broccoli sprouts. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's that's so elite, right?
0: <laughs> you are an elite. Yeah. Julie is in the heartland, so she by definition is not an elite.
2: That's right. I'm in I'm in real America right now. Um, so, Lee, I think. You wanted to jump in here and address this contemporary question about um, where we find populism right now, and the Warren Sanders, uh,
1: yeah, Trump question. Yeah, I mean, so both Trump. And Warren and Sanders, I think they have that same anti-elite rhetoric that you find through as a, as a hallmark of populism, which is that the elites have sold you out and you, the people, deserve a better deal. Now, it manifests obviously in very different ways uh, on, on both sides of the aisle. Um, and, you know, I, I think... Uh, you know Trump's Trump's version of populism is is more authoritarian, more ethno-nationalist, certainly. And I, I think it's it's you know, but also in in both cases, it's it's a very rhetorical style. As I mean, we we don't know how how Sanders or Warren would behave as presidents, but as a president, Trump, I mean, he, he's certainly been an ethno-nationalist, but on on economics, he's not been. I mean, I guess you could say his trade stuff has been sort of populist, but I mean, he cuts taxes for the rich. He promises he's going to expand all these social welfare programs, which is that's sort of a classic contemporary style of populism, you know, welfare chauvinism. And then he, he doesn't do that. Uh, so, you know, he, he pitches himself as the tribune of the people against a kind of corrupt establishment. And then, you know, frankly, from, from my perspective, he, he he's more corrupt than the establishment that that he's replaced. I mean, and I guess that, although actually, I mean, maybe he is typical of, of some populists who wind up being quite corrupt and quite clientelistic. So, uh i i I don't know if i mean i I think this is this is the thing that we're struggling with is that there's so many varieties of populism and and it's a maybe it's a political style more than it is a, a substantive program all
2: right so i want to jump in on this and then we're gonna go into our our roll call um so i think that one of the challenges of defining populism conceptually is that if populism is a rhetorical and political style then governing as a populist isn't really a thing yeah you can govern you can govern as someone whose policies are more in favor of one group or another and you can define that in terms of wealth or in terms of of previous social status um or in terms of the the size of the coalition of people that benefit but i think that this is sort of the challenge with populism and i'm probably revealing uh, some of what i'm going to say when we do our roll call on where we all stand is that even people with kind of left populist rhetoric where they're arguing, I'm going to pass a policy that's going to be good for the people and they define that in economic terms or in income terms, you know, they might pass a policy that benefits certain people, even it benefits a lot of people, but it's going to have unintended, all policies have unintended consequences and they all have people who win less um, or even people who lose, and it's not really possible in practice to neatly divide that between the, to borrow the um, the, the cost mood definition, the the authentic people and the corrupt elite. Right, that's they, you can't actually make a policy that, that affects people along those neatly defined dimensions. So to me, the, there's no benefit in calling a policy populist over calling it left-wing economics or welfare chauvinism or whatever it might be um and in that sense i think that's you know that really shows us populism can only can only serve as as rhetoric and not as a governing philosophy Um, so on that note i want to actually move us into our our roll call do we have too much populism in our system not enough just the right amount um, I believe we'll we'll kick it off with you James what do you think
0: well again I think it depends on how you how you see populism how you define it but my own particular view is I don't I don't think if I think about populism as a, as a way to mobilize people, as a way to challenge the status quo, as bringing more groups who haven't had their voices expressed into politics, that isn't necessarily, I think, at odds with uh, pluralism, with the pluralistic conception of politics. In fact, it is inherently pluralistic if you're bringing more groups into, into society. So put me down on the side of we need more populism, um, not less populism.
1: Yeah, I struggle with this. I mean, I, I, I've been sort of thinking a lot about this definition or at least description of populism from Benjamin Ardidi, uh which is uh, populism, quote, resembles a drunken guest at a dinner party. He's not respecting table manners. He is rude. But he might also be blurting out the truth about it a liberal democracy that has become forgetful of its founding ideal of popular sovereignty. And, and I mean, I think one of the reasons that Trump became president was because he was so critical of establishment politics. And that resonated with a lot of folks who feel that Washington and national politics hasn't really worked very well. Uh, and we've seen rising inequality uh, and economic stagnation a lot of for a lot of Americans. And I think when you have a, a high level of inequality and in a policymaking process that clearly does tilt very heavily to the wealthiest and most powerful. That, that's something important to call out. So If that makes me a populist, then that makes me a populist, but uh, but also my solution is more rather than less pluralism, so I don't know what that makes me. Maybe James and I kind of agree on this point. I don't like so broccoli sprouts.
2: Here's where I stand on this. I am really not a fan of populism, um, regardless of what ideology it's attached to, and uh, James mentioned Rick Carlstein and his wonderful books and I have uh, gotten into arguments with Rick about this at conferences before. We were both at a conference at Stanford on, on the topic of, um, of populism. So, I, you know, so there's people I've, I've disagreed with all across the ideological spectrum about this. I think it generally identifies problems in terms of a corrupt class and it makes an implicit argument that the wrong people are in power. Rather than offering a coherent and workable theory about how people can share power, that's a sort of abstract critique. I think the more concrete critique, and this is the one that I'm working on an essay about this, is that it, the populism in the United States system right now isn't so much that there's too much of it; is it's directed. It seems to get directed at the wrong targets. Um, so I, I was writing some of this and thinking about this a little bit before I saw the. Um, Elizabeth Warren billionaire tears coffee mug which we can talk about but in this in this piece I've been working on for a while I feel like a lot of populism populist critiques either get aimed at at political parties or at the press and these are obviously institutions that are worthy of criticism they're worthy of of you know close scrutiny but they're also kind of flagging in terms of their legitimacy and strength and that concerns me about populism is that it it has a real, you know, a real potential to get aimed at targets who aren't really that powerful. And that's particularly true in a in a situation in um, contemporary American politics where we're very closely divided um, and where, you know, where people, broadly speaking on the left and the right, have kind of, you know, equal different kinds of claims being shared in different kinds of institutions. On the one hand, we were making fun of Lee about his broccoli sprouts, um, They're that,
1: delicious, by the way.
2: Not, what's that?
1: They're delicious.
2: Okay, no, I have no doubt. But actually, that's totally false. I have some <laughs> doubts. But the the thing about about this general question is like it's not wrong that the left is winning culturally, right? That the left has is has control over institutions like the media and higher education. At the same time, it's also not wrong that. The right has considerable political power, that there's a very strong right wing um, political establishment, that Republicans control the presidency right now and the Senate. You know, so both sides have kind of claimed to the other side has all the power in one realm or another and is illegitimately using it. And I think that makes for a really explosive situation where you can easily aim partisan or excuse me, aim populist claims at institutions that aren't especially, you know, that aren't especially Overly corrupt or overly powerful, and instead are just kind of convenient targets.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's that's fair, and that's a very uh, astute diagnosis of of where we are politically. Um, but you know, I mean, I think we there's been this sense for for a little while now that American politics is not working particularly well and and some of that is polarization and some of that is inequality and that, that kind of makes for a toxic mix but but I mean I, I'm somebody who thinks that we actually really need to shake up the political system quite a bit and you know obviously you know if you give it too vigorous of a shake you know you, you destroy it um and that, that's sort of a question that I'm struggling with, uh, with the Trump presidency because part of me says well you know Trump for all the damage he's done one thing he's done is he's cleared away a lot of a lot of assumptions and a lot of norms that, you know, some of which agree, disagree. But I think he's he's opened up the possibility to rebuild something new. And in that way, although populism is destructive and doesn't have a governing ideology, sometimes things get kind of stuck and you need somebody who kind of shakes things up. And I I don't like Trump style. I don't like what he's doing. But if you feel like the political system is stuck, like, you know, some, something needs to, to, to shake it up. And I think that's the role that populism can can play in a political system that gets in into a, a, a stuck position. Maybe it's making it more stuck. I don't know. I,
0: I would just say real quick, I, I think this is very important though. It's not that shaking the system is somehow going to destroy the system insofar as you're shaking it by participating inside the system, right? I think that's the whole point of our system. And so if populists are like, are channeling their efforts to challenge the dominant status quo and to create new status quos by introducing new conflict into the system. That's fine. I mean, there's no amount of populism that's going to destroy our wonderful political system, in my mind, as long as it's operating within the political system.
2: So I want to just jump in here quickly that um, I think that the problem with the the Trump formulation, as you've posed it, is that I agree with you that there are a lot of ways in which power in our system is not being distributed or used in ways that are broadly beneficial, um, and that there are a lot of things that are kind of stale and need shaking up, but that Trump, in his populist approach, has done so in a way that reflects the, the superficiality and shallowness of, of populism. So, okay, what kinds of possibilities? Because the Trump presidency opened up, this could be a podcast all on its own. Um, it's, it's you know now we have we can envision different kinds of people as president or different kinds of people in the administration or a wider range of policies, and that may be true on the left and the right. But I've I to see like a real substantive, you know, instance of oh, now that we don't have these these norms, and I admit that I do break with a lot of other people in political science in that I think norms can be can be stale, I think norms can, can ossify hierarchies of, you know, of, of power um, I don't think norms are always good but I can't think of one where I'm like, you know, thank goodness that's gone, um, that's really productive and really opened up a productive kind of vein where and conservatives can now have a new conversation it's all like, okay, now you know, Marianne Williamson and Andrew Yang and Tom Steyer are running for president, which um, I'm now going to get skewered on Twitter for saying. I, I don't so, know.
1: I, 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 but I mean, they're bringing. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm coming around to kind of, kind of appreciate what Yang is is doing, which may be another podcast in, in and of itself. I think he's raising some issues that that need to get discussed in and how technology is is transforming the economy. Um, you, know, maybe wh- you
2: would want to come on the podcast?
1: Maybe. Uh if you're listening, <laughs> uh which uh, anyway, uh, uh what possibilities? No, we know are, you're listening. I mean, one thing that Trump, Trump's presidency has done is he's engaged a hell of a lot more people in politics, uh, and I don't know where that leads. But I, I, think there were a lot of people who were somewhat complacent about our political system and not engaged. And young people are, have become much more engaged. I think there, there, there's been tremendous organization in response to Trump. He's, he's probably moved America in a much more pro public opinion and a much more pro immigration direction in response to him. So I think we're not seeing yet the possibilities that he's created. I think he's made people much more willing to think about structural reform to our political system and understand that our political system is broken. But I, I think we will look back 10 years from now and and see the Trump presidency as, as both destructive and regenerative.
2: All right. So we're being even more long-winded than normal. I want to just move us on a little bit um, and talk about the kind of history of populism um, who counts as a populist where has populism played out in American history so I'm going to give a very brief drive by um, set of questions about the 19th century. Sometimes people identify Thomas Jefferson as a as a populist. I have been having an argument with a friend of mine for off and on for a year about whether that's true. I think that that's a little bit early to identify someone as a as a populist, and I'm not totally sold on the idea that Jefferson's notions about um, about governance or about civic republicanism or toward elites really fit into the kind of antagonism framework that I think is so important to populism. Sometimes Andrew Jackson is identified as an early populist, so he was president um, in the late or in the 1820s and 1830s. And his rhetoric on behalf of the common man, his opposition to governing institutions that he saw as being excessively beneficial to moneyed interests. So he saw the second bank of the United States as a public institution serving private ends. And so he destroyed it. Those are usually the claims, the arguments in favor of him as a kind of proto-populist, early populist. Jackson illustrates how people making claims on behalf of a quote-unquote people can really be pretty really shitty to some of those people, like the slaves they own or Native Americans that they slaughter. So I really have, you know, I think that's, in terms of the historical argument, I think that it makes the most sense to identify the beginning of populism in the, in the 1890s as a kind of agrarian movement. Um, but if you want to think about Jackson as a proto-populist, I think he really illustrates the, the challenges that Ideology and particularly of, of populism in a um, you know, larger historical context of defining the people. Lee yeah. and James, you are going to jump in. Yeah, there.
1: yeah. So I mean, I'll I'll, I'll pick up that thread. Of the 1890s. I mean, that that's the time when you have an actual populist party. Uh, which is basically basically merges with the Democratic Party in 1896 when Democrats nominate William Jennings Bryan, who you mentioned before, who's this this Prairie populist, this this orator, but you know also an anti-Semite and the person who argues uh, in the Scopes Monkey Trial that evolution shouldn't be taught in schools at the end of his career. But that populism, that that you know agrarian farmer populism, is making a real cr- critique. Of concentrated power, and the railroads had tremendous power, and the farmers were being screwed by the Eastern banks. So there was something to that. Now, eventually, that melds with uh, the populists and the Mugwumps, kind of meld into this loose, baggy Progressive movement, and you you get a lot of reforms, some some better than others. But you know, I, I think if you looked at the American political system in the eighteen nineties, you'd see tremendous inequality. Parties were incredibly. Corrupt, both of them, uh, and there there was a real critique to be made, and something needed to be shaken up, and that populism was the blunt interest that that forced change into the system, and eventually was was sort of you know moderated and tolerated by Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, oh,
0: I think we should have a politics in question uh, movie night, and we should watch Inherit the Wind. Fabulous movie! It is a fabulous, It's a movie. wonderful movie. We should. That
2: would be- I watched that my sophomore year in high school and I don't think I've watched it since, so oh, sure. Sounds said, good. For our
0: listeners, it. it may be a bit tough to just listen to the audio version. of. It'd be like went. the
1: Mystery Science yeah. Theater, three thousand, but. With- a
0: great show. Um, no, I, I think kind of going back from where Lee is and, and looking back at the founding period to kind of situate us a bit, you know, one dominant view of the, that time is that the framers hated the people. And they... Think about their worries about Shays' rebellion, opposition to paper money. Um, and I, that, I think, to a certain extent is true in the sense that they viewed democracy as a, as a bad word, as a bad thing. But it's also important to remember that they saw populism in the in the way that I define populism um, as an unavoidable fact of political life. Madison talks about this in Federalist 10. And group struggles are, are how we manifest our politics, right? And it's really a manifestation of the group struggle. That struggle defines the status quo. Instead, the framers aren't anti-people, they're anti-instability. And so long as our uh, populist forces are working within this system, Within these different institutional arenas, these crucibles of conflict, like Congress, the House and the Senate, the separation of powers. As long as they're operating within that, it's that that conflict buttresses the system that they established in the in the with the Constitution. And populism could be a, a is a positive and dynamic force in our politics, as Lee says. It allows them to to challenge corrupt status quo. Even if you think about pre-revolutionary America, where along the tidewater you have all of political representation, and then If you go up into the um, if you go up into the Piedmont areas and the mountains, they're not you have groups of people who are not represented all along the eastern seaboard and their uh, colonial assemblies and eventually their state assemblies. And that is a very populist uprising. John C. Calhoun's father led all of his neighbors down into the tidewater to challenge the South Carolinian um, elites to say, we want representation and they had a bunch of guns with them, and I guess they got it. And so after that, they went on. So populism has been with us from the very beginning. But again, I think it's just how is that manifested? And that, I think, says whether it's good or bad.
2: Fascinating. So we've kind of laid out where populism fits into different parts of American history. And what I want to do here is briefly touch back on this uh, question about populism as a as an ideology or political style and think about whether populism is currently undermining the way that American political institutions work. And then after we briefly discuss that, we're going to jump into some ideas that, you know, what, what would fix this or change this or um, make populism, I don't know, serve us, serve American politics better. And then we'll see if we've changed anybody's mind.
0: Right. So uh, I think. And again, maybe I'm like just always bigger picture, but I'm not sure populism is the cause of our dysfunction so much as it's just a symptom or a manifestation of that, of the fact that our institutions aren't working the way they're supposed to. When you try to extinguish political conflict inside our institutions because you're an elitist who loves broccoli sprouts or you're a technocrat who just knows the way things ought to be, you get bad reactions because. The whole point of politics is to adjudicate conflict when we make collective decisions. This is what we're seeing in Europe right now with the European Union. The EU is a a design to take politics out of politics, and you see the reaction on both the left and the right to that, uh, to that force, and they and you have people who have no choice but to look for populist appeals. And I think we're better off in America because our system allows for those populist appeals to be channeled through our system, whereas the EU, in many respects, doesn't, isn't really equipped to handle that. So again, I'm not sure that it's populism is undermining our institutions in so much as it is our institutions and the lack of the politics that's happening there that is undermining our, uh, it's undermining our politics and making populism. Uh, a greater thing that right now than it has been in the past.
1: Yeah, I, 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 I think that the the rise of populism is a symptom, and if you look at it throughout Western Europe uh, or throughout, throughout Western democracies, really, it's you know a response to the kind of declining living standards for a lot of folks, particularly after the financial crisis, um, as well as immigration, which is that why it's why it's the right. Right populism. But, you know, there there are a lot of folks throughout Western democracies who who feel like they've really been left behind in the global economy. And they feel like there's a bunch of people who are getting really rich and uh, their living standards are slipping. And they feel like the political system has served them poorly. Um, you know, our, our, so, so that's, you know, the, the system needs a jolt to, to, to address those issues. I mean, our, our system is inherently pluralistic, because that's the fundamental design of our institutions is to demand a high degree of bargaining and to make them relatively open. Uh, to a a wide range of interests, which again means that it can be exploited by the powerful because it is open. Uh, And it also can get stuck when there's no consensus on how to move forward. And at moments when it's stuck, I I think it does need need a kind of outside jolt to to get moving again. And maybe populism uh, or the populism that's rising now is that jolt.
2: So I think, you know, some of this all makes sense to me, but and I certainly see the point about economic inequality, which we've We'll talk about it a bit more in a second. But I think that it's still it's not really politically responsible to to make appeals that suggest that you can blame a particular group of people and if only that group of people loses their access to our power, things will be fine.
1: Yeah. That, yeah. Think- it's a it's a wrong claim. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's an unfair claim, but it does jolt the system, right? I mean, that that sometimes you're not, if you're not getting through in ordinary reasonable politics, sometimes you, you you know, you need to jolt the system a little bit. And, you know, I, I, but I mean, I understand that that's irresponsible and where it can lead. So I'm, I'm a little torn there, right? Uh, But I do think that the American political system has not been responsive to a lot of people and there's tremendous and growing economic inequality. And to me, that that's a system that's not working. So like, something needs to change and i mean maybe you have a you have a, a better plan to to deal with that
2: i mean i don't know that i have a great plan to deal with it or else i would be running for president um cuz well, why not but let me i'd, I'd vote I, for I you. Want to go back to the question about does populism at least in the us case hasn't really shaken up the system in a in a meaningful way and i think that in some ways just sort of pushed back into some old ruts and there so here and again i don't really want to pick on andrew gang or whoever um and you know clearly his candidacy speaks to people and, and that's great but um the i don't think that having different people from different sectors run for president who are pro- probably unlikely to win is the is, is a part of a really meaningful solution um I think that it further entrenches, and we haven't talked about this, but populism is a pretty personalistic kind of way of doing politics, right? The person populist parties tend to have a kind of charismatic leader at their head. So we have a wide variety of people right now seeking the Democratic nomination, some of whom are, you know, are kind of are uh, casting out with a pretty like individualistic, personalistic way of seeking that office, and. That's what the political system is now, has, there's been an incentive for that in the political system for a long time, to look for one leader to have a highly presidentially centered system, to to primary members of Congress, if they're not doing what you want, like all of these kinds of publicitory approaches. And they haven't, like they, each of these things has just contributed further to the status quo. They haven't made things better. They haven't brought, they haven't redistributed economic, um, wealth or economic resources and that's where I think you know putting all the eggs in the presidency basket is populism's biggest you know biggest tool in the toolkit and I feel like I'm going to mix this metaphor real soon as I go downhill but that's you know that's sort of what I see is like okay we've shaken up some of the rhetoric we've opened up ideas about who can run for president I do agree with Lee about the idea that more people are politically engaged and that's something I've written about. But other ways in which it's shaken up, the political system are still quite quite superficial.
0: I'm just going to jump in here though. I mean, I think populism yeah. isn't always, I mean, yeah, it, it you have highly charismatic leaders, certainly, but not always. In an American context, populism has often been defined, um, is not necessarily associated with these highly charismatic leaders. I mean, think most recently to the reaction to the crash in 2008. And you have the Occupy Wall Street movement, you have the Tea Party movement, neither one of which are seen as basically a, a an arm of a highly charismatic leader at the time, right? And and they're out there and they're very different because they are they're both populist type movements but they're attached to to um to different kind of ideologies. And the Occupy Wall Street is much more inclusive and the, the Tea Party movement, it seems, is much more exclusive uh, based because of the nature of the ideologies they're attached to. But I, I think populism can be attached to strong leaders and we can look at it through a presidential lens, but it's not always the case that, that um is 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 how populism goes. In the late 19th century with William Jennings Bryan, he was just the guy they turned to at the time. It was not A movement with a strong leadership until they've basically said, okay, well, now we're going to turn to Brian and and try to win the presidency here. Uh, So I think there are – it's a reaction. It's a more broad-based, widespread reaction against the status quo by disadvantaged people.
1: But I do want to pick up something, Julia, that you said there that's very important, which is the the plebiscitary nature of, of, of the presidency has a tendency towards populism because it puts a lot of emphasis on just one person. Uh, as the as the tribute of the people. And I, and I mean, I think this is a, a problem with presidential systems throughout the world, is that you, you focus all the energy on one person, and that leads to this charismatic populist style at times when other things don't seem to be working very well. I mean, I, I would like to see a much stronger Congress, and Congress that, that really... Works in a in a pluralistic way, but that hasn't been happening for a while now. How do we get there? I, you know, I don't know, but something has to something has to change. Let me jump in here, though, because I think yes, when
0: you have a presidential system, it is going to tend to be much more personality based and around one individual, and especially when our Congress isn't working and we don't do politics like we used to, it's going to be even worse. But the populism we see in Europe right now is is exist within a parliamentary system. It's much more party based. It's not necessarily uh, kind of mobilized via one strong and leading individual. And so even with Lee's um, idea of getting rid of the presidential system and going to a more of a parliamentary-based system, it doesn't necessarily solve the problem of populism or solve the solution of populism, however you want to look at it. It just changes the way in which populism is manifested. And it won't be manifested as attached to one leader per se. It'll take on much more of a party-based mobilization type uh, style or approach, I think
1: that would be better.
0: Well, I mean, the European problems, I mean, people can look at Europe and, and see both on the left and the right. that populism can be especially nasty um, in the European context. And so it you know, it could be better. It could be worse. Again, I think it depends on the circumstances and the grievances of those communities oh. at a particular
1: point in time. Well, that's, that may be another topic.
2: Yeah. Um, the parliamentary versus presidential. Absolutely. So, but, yeah. So I take your point. Things about Occupy and the Tea Party, Those are, that's an interesting um, set of points. So let's move on to talking about proposals um, where we have some questions about where, you know, can populist claims be compatible with robust institutions? Does this probably suggest there are, there are things to reform in our current institutions? What are some things we could do to maybe buffer some of the more concerning impacts of populism?
0: I mean, I think we just got to get our institutions working again, which means getting the people who are in our institutions to see that that place that they are that they occupy, that they're a member of is the place where they should be trying to adjudicate the concerns of their constituents, whoever they may be, and by and by basically trying to win. And you see this in the 1960s and 70s, you have at a very kind of populist type time in American politics, Congress is doing all kinds of incredible things in the late 19th century with a populist uh, conflict around Congress is doing incredible things, incredible. I mean, there, in, people may not like all of it, but at the end of the day, there it's a dynamic institution that it sees itself, at its responsibility is to be the crucible of conflict that's generated by all these different populist appeals and to sort it out one way or the other. And that's the key. And until we get people in our institutions who actually want to be there, and see that institution as the place that will solve all your problems or at least try to i don't think anything's going to get better
1: i mean the, the problem is that we have populism on top of these highly polarized parties that are arguing over the character of the nation and and that's a recipe for i think really dangerous political conflict so uh, you know in in my view we we need i said this on the last show we need to make political conflict multidimensional again and I mean, we're, uh, we're working uh, on the hats. Yeah, and, and you know, I mean, I agree with James that we need to fight some of these things out. I mean, we're we're having a lot of these symbolic, rhetorical fights that get people's passions inflamed, and then there's no resolution, so the the passions stay inflamed. Uh, so I, I think populism maybe the the. Rising populism will, will shake up our institutions enough that we actually reform them and think about ways to actually manage some of this conflict. But we're not going to—populism uh, is, is a symptom of, of a political system that's not working. And as long as our political system is not working and continuing to be stuck, both stuck and disproportionately con- responsive to, to wealthy interests when it does anything, we have, we have a big problem. And, you know, that, this this is why I'm a fan of, of big structural reform. What do you think, Julia?
0: So
2: I take both of these points. I just want to add something very brief here, um, which is that we, we kind of dropped off this idea of race. And I think one of the things for scholars to do is to disentangle is our populist claims actually mapping on to to racial anxieties, um, you know, are these the same? I mean, there's different perspectives about that. And there's also people who are working on the question of whether um, contemporary, some contemporary social movements that are that are headed up by people of color are also economically populist. And some of these economic populist movements we've mentioned are, you know, were attempts to afford diverse and biracial coalitions and things like that. But one thing that I do see and that I kind of alluded to and I was talking about, how people have these kind of widespread claims to victimhood is to confront directly the idea that there does seem to be a narrative among some people in the electorate that immigrants coming to their community or particularly people who don't share their race or their language or their religion or having to having to change their, um, their community or their life to accommodate the an African-American community that might move there or something like that. I'm reading this morning, I'm reading this New York Times piece about uh, schools in Columbia, Maryland, and racial integration. I think that there there is a narrative that communities of color happen to ordinary white people. And that as long as that that idea has resonance, then there's going to be a problem with populism or kind of populist-infused nationalism, nationalism, populism, um, or we could just call it sort of straight-up racism. Um, that, I mean, it built straight out of the George Wallace claims from the 60s, this idea that these ordinary people are living their lives, working-class people, and they're, you know, people from on high are imposing the problems of other communities, the community of color, on them. And I don't have a solution to that, but I don't think that we can just kind of change the structures of, of representation or you know, approach our institutions about thinking very seriously about the ideas and about the society that those institutions serve um, and about the narratives that are, I think, pretty kind of deeply pervasive, not I mean not even on the right, but to some extent also on the left.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree that these are serious problems uh and you know i i will go on the record racism is bad um i I would agree with that uh you know i like but the question is how do you you know we we've we've always struggled with this throughout our history and we struggled with it a lot in the '60s, but it didn't break our political system because we had ways to 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 work through these conflicts and a political system that didn't have this all-or-nothing binary polarization along racial identity, geographical, cultural lines, and you know this is another moment in which we're having a lot of challenges over you know who has power in society and hierarchies and status are changing and that's very destabilizing for for any political society but i think it's it's potentially fatally destabilizing when that becomes the central dividing line in national binary political conflict and elections are all or nothing one way or the other and that that's Populists, populists really thrive in, in an extremist black or white world because populism is really a black and white philosophy. And we need to make politics multidimensional and complex again because I think that undermines the simplicity of, of, of populism.
0: Well, if you have a lot of different groups out there with black and white views of the world, when they all come together in government and try to fight it out, by definition, you end up getting gray. Right. Because well, depends, they're all it depends. It, that's the Madisonian. It depends. Idea it depends behind how my, I mean,
1: Right. If, if there are a lot of them, but if there's just black if versus just, white,
0: if yeah, if there's just two, then, yeah, it might be a bit of a problem. Or if you have all the people on one side and all of the elites on the other side, that's also a bit of a problem. But at the end of the day, if you get more groups and more parties and more um, populist appeals out there to try to, to come to the nation's capital and try to win there, I think the result's going to be more shades of gray. That's the only thing that can happen because our system demands compromise.
2: All right. So we, I think we would probably argue about this for another hour, but I would rather uh, wrap it up at this point. So how are we feeling about populism after this discussion? Has anyone changed their mind?
1: I think I've become a little bit more, I, I mean, i I'm more appreciative of, of of the role that populism can play, but also wary of I mean, I, of the role that populism can play. I also think everybody should try broccoli sprouts. Yeah.
0: But I, uh, I'm going to make my kids try broccoli sprouts.
1: You can grow yeah. them, grow them at yourself, <laughs> at home. If we get some sponsorship, I could, I could yeah. tell you the products that I use. You're
0: a farmer. You're a, you're oh, yeah. in the heartland kitchen, kitchen farmer. I, um, gentlemen, you know, I on one hand, I, I'm very much. I still like the idea of populism, at least the way I see it. But I do have a greater appreciation of the, the dangers of, of particular conceptions of populism, as Lee has expressed them. I think that that is something that we have to be on guard about. And maybe the, the way to deal with that is to not reject populism writ large, but to be more discerning in our and in, in how we distinguish different types of populist movements and what makes them good, what makes them bad. What do we and, and try to encourage the populist movements that are fundamentally good and 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 that and reinforce and buttress our political system and help make it work?
2: So I think you know I'm I'm going to sit a little bit with um, Lee's comment about Trump's shaking up of the political system, which I I still I think on balance think is fairly superficial, but I do take the point that there's greater engagement and and participation and that you know people uh, have been voting and, and going to different kinds of um, political events and watching political events. Um, and also, I'll be thinking a little bit about James's point about populist movements that don't have charismatic leaders. Um, that's, you know, in, in comparative politics, it tends to be, I don't want to say article of faith, but it tends to be quite common in other countries that that's the case, because these are populist parties that speak up. but these social movements in the U.S. context, and probably elsewhere, are a little bit of a different animal. All right, so we have talked a bit about, about what populism is, about how it fits into our history, about different ideological dimensions and theoretical dimensions, and how it plays out in American in politics. And I'd like to think we've had a civil discussion despite having some considerable disagreements about the role of populism in American politics. Um so I think that's a wrap and I thank you all for joining us and we'll uh, we'll see you
3: next
1: time. Broccoli sprouts for the people.
3: It's now time for our two truths and a lie segment. I'm Elena Soros. I produce this podcast and our hosts here obviously know a lot about politics. They know a lot about populism. So we're going to see if there's something that they don't know. Uh, the problem here though is populism is actually not that funny. Um, But we tried to find something that is funny within this topic area. So we landed on current British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who is known for his very embarrassing gaffes. Um, There are so many of them that there's actually been speculation that it is all actually planned as part of his whole man of the people shtick. So I'm going to tell you three stories about silly things that Boris Johnson did while mayor of London. And you guys will tell me which one is the lie. So, story A. During the London celebrations for the 2012 Olympics, then Mayor Boris Johnson decided to test out a new zip line installed in the city. With a small British flag in each hand, he set off in the harness until he got stuck on the zip line. He was trapped on the zip line for about 10 minutes, dangling in the air. Story B. During a visit to a school in London, Boris Johnson stopped by a chemistry classroom doing experiments burning sugar and baking soda. The high school teacher asked Johnson if he wanted to try the experiment, who promptly lit a Bunsen burner too close to a student's backpack. A quick-thinking member of his security team put the small fire out before it caused any damage. And then we have story C. While visiting Tokyo, Boris Johnson participated in a casual game of street rugby with a group of Japanese school kids. When Johnson got the ball, he was so caught up in the game that he ran right down the field and bulldozed another player, a small 10-year-old boy who he knocked to the ground so we have three stories here we have boris johnson getting stuck on a zip line setting a student's backpack on fire or tackling a small child during a game of rugby all part of his populist man of the people shtick
0: well the only elites play street rugby where i'm from but well, <laughs>
2: well, you're, well <laughs> you're obviously not from japan we'll
0: let that go um
2: only elites go to chemistry classes where I'm
0: from. Yeah, exactly. But the Bunsen burner is kind of cool. I remember those. Do they still have those? Only, it's, a, it's only just an a, open flame in school. That seems like something that would be bad.
1: Only elites use zip line.
0: Yeah, no, yeah, no elites. Yeah, I
1: mean, I, they, I mean, where where else do they have zip lines but in like posh neighborhood playgrounds?
0: Yeah, that's I've never even seen a zip line in a playground.
1: Yeah. Well, well, you 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 haven't spent enough time in Northwest DC, oh, okay. clearly.
0: No. I'm, I live in Southeast.
1: I know. That's why you got to move up to Northwest. Yeah, I'm, I'm from
0: the South. Yeah. I like to stay in the South. Northeast is a little bit tough for me. It's just right across the street.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, I, I'm going to say number two is the lie.
0: Really? I'm going to go with the, I'm going to go with the zipline. It's It's just unbelievable that that exists.
1: Oh, I, I remember the zipline story.
0: Oh, okay. Well, but maybe I shouldn't then. I don't know. Okay. I'm going to go with Lee's. I'm going to go with number two then. He seems confident. Yeah,
2: I'm going with
3: that. The chemist-
0: yeah, chemistry class. And do you use Bunsen burners? Uh, yeah, I guess so.
3: Yeah. All right. Well, happy to tell you, you all were correct. He did actually get stuck on a zip line. There's some really good pictures. If you want to look those up, uh, we'll put them in the articles in the show notes. Um, it is also true that he totally tackled a ten year old Japanese kid.
0: I mean, if, he, if he's in the way, you gotta gotta win. Yeah, That's the name of the game. Yeah. Seriously, uh, don't play street rugby if you can. Conflict. You're being knocked down. It's the way it works.
3: Well, thanks for playing. Better luck to me next time stumping you all. But we all learned a little bit more about Boris Johnson and his populism today. Amazing.
1: Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly.